Hey everybody, this is John Fusco, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. We had some of the biggest directors of the year on the show in 2018, and this bunch of best ofs proves it. Jorgos Lanthimos, Deborah Granick, Jeremy Saulnier, and the legendary Mike Lee all make an appearance, as does Denis Villeneuve and Steve McQueen's go-to editor, Joe Walker. So, without wasting any more of your precious time, let's get into it. First on the docket is Deborah Granick, whose film Leave No Trace graced many prominent critics' end-of-the-year lists and is widely considered to be one of the best films of 2018. Granick's films are known for their visceral intimacy and gravitating performances, particularly from young talent. The most well-known example is her direction of Jennifer Lawrence's breakout role in Winter's Bone, which was nominated for an Oscar for Best Picture in 2011. Leave No Trace features another such breakthrough performance from the young Thomason McKenzie. Granick's clearly got an eye for this sort of thing. Liz Nord sat down with Granick to talk about how she's able to spot such talent, and the casting process she uses that we can all attempt to adapt for our own work. Here's an excerpt from Leave No Trace, the secret ingredient to great casting. First question is just what is your kind of general casting process? And again, anyone feel free to jump in. Right, because the casting is very communal. You know, we're all looking at the auditions. We're um, in auditions together at times, you know. And so um, I think what is usually at play is is the sort of vastness of the role, right? So that we, it was not lost on anyone that, that, that the role for a teen woman in this film was going to be rich. You know, it was going to be something where she was going to be able to demonstrate so many sides of herself, how she relates to authority, how she relates to someone very close to her, what, how she, what she observes, how she does it. And um, so it would be what she says, what we see her seeing, what then we see back reflected on her, um, and that there would also be a lot of physicality to this role, which is also extremely rich, when, especially when you're applying that to a female, right? Because right. she's out there traipsing, she's moving, she's strong, she's um, she's got the gear, she knows how to, you know, use this knife, and and she has this prowess. This and so we, I think, felt excited that whoever we were going to cast was going to have a very meaty. Really, uh, what's it called? You know, very filled sandwich or whatever. You want. I don't know what the metaphor is, but you know, just something to chew on for real. And and so I think uh, maybe then the next kind of um, interesting criteria is sort of assessing or vibing off of willingness, right? And I think uh, I think all of us could see that the audition was strong from Thomason. And I think what the subsequent uh, incoming intel that was was affirming and, and exciting to us was the Skype conversations that followed the audition was where the willingness was manifest, where she would let us know that she had not just read the script or just the sides, or, you know, but that she had read the book and that she was already traipsing around what she called you know the bush, which is the scrub in the, in the sort of wildlands around where she lives. Right, because she's originally from New Zealand. Yeah, but not originally. Currently, I mean, she's, oh. she is in New Zealand, full, full, full-fledged Kiwi. Um so the, when I hear those kinds of uh, ideas being expressed by a young actor, I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to run to the team and say, Tom is uh, she's generous, she's open-hearted, I love what she said. She, she, she just, and then lo and behold, a couple days later, after a discussion about some other scenes, 
you know, almost like a just a discussion of things that she did these improvs based on these ideas that, that we had discussed. So I was like, okay, there's no motivation problem here, or there's no, you know, there's no sort of um, jaded, ah, maybe, you know. <laughs> it's much more like, I would love to be a part of this. Let me show you in which ways I, I'm already kind of on board. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I love this concept of willingness beyond just the skill. Are, are there any things that you have done or you as a team have done to sort of get someone to demonstrate willingness, like kind of almost like a test you've mm. put folks through? You, I, I, I don't know what day it was recently. I was thinking you can't, you can't demand anything. People have to want to give it, you know, and, um, and that especially uh, the more experienced an actor is, boy, does that play out, you know, um, because they're they're feeling their own set of um, inspirations and and things that they're um, you know, ideas and thoughts and feelings that they're churning up to to bring to the role. So they're going to give that uh, with a younger actor. However, um, I would say you, there are it's not tested, but it's like that. You can float ideas, and the, and the receptive young actor will build on them. Mm. Right. I mean, I think in the um, casting process for Tom, you know, to get to the next round beyond that first um, process where she sends a, an audition, you had her do an improv to see what it was like to actually work with her, to give her an idea and see what she walks away with and brings back to the table. So, And then in, in this particular role, I mean, she plays the counterpart to her dad, uh, of course, Will is the character's name. And um, so he had to be carefully cast. I mean, these two carry the whole film. Do you have a different casting process or approach for for older, more experienced actors than younger? Is it all the same? You know, the, the father was, was, was so hard to cast um, because for a variety of reasons, but I, I would think, uh, I think one of them is that it would take someone who actually wanted to spend the time doing something like skills training or some kind of immersion, you know. So this is this would not be suited for someone who really needs this, their time on set to be the smallest amount possible, right? And that, um, you know, no extra thing could be asked of them. And I think uh, through a conversation with Ben that was made feasible by, you know, his interest, his initial interest in the script, which, you know, he was so... Uh, communicative about last night and um that the conversation could happen and then he he definitely said oh no that's the way I like to work I do like to work I like to work with immersion I like to be trained I I like to be exposed to the ingredients and the textures that will be accurate for my my character and then we knew as as a team that he'd also prior to this done a lot of personal research into lives of soldiers and um what it means you know, what, what someone might be left with after combat experience, and uh, and that had dated back now several films for him. So he's bringing an endowment. He's already bringing, you know, I want to say, you know, emotional capital and 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 backstory to this film. That that's that's already an that's an asset that he's bringing just right out of the gate. So he hadn't necessarily engaged in combat himself, but he'd played roles where he also had to dig into those same kind of. Emotions. That's interesting. And, and and be informed by by he'd spent a lot of time speaking to soldiers in previous film trainings and, and um yeah, so he 
and reading. He re- he's a reader and he, he reads a lot of anecdotal and firsthand material. So then you find these two and you're really having positive feelings about them and you know they have the skill and maybe the willingness. Again, I love that word. Um, but then how do you know two these two folks can carry your whole film? I mean, we see them, I don't know the percentage, 90% of the time, more maybe? You don't know that. Yeah, I don't think until, I think again that goes to the willingness. I think Tom, I think Will wanted to connect with Tom. I think he he... He wasn't a father at the time in real life. I think he was really intrigued with the idea of, of fatherhood and what it might be to have a teenage daughter. But Tom's openness, it's sort of like if you can't connect with Tom, you can't connect with people because she's just so open and, mm-hmm. and warm. And I think that just opened the door for him to to find that like piece of being a father. So I feel like they... They did that themselves just out of being open. But you, as Deborah said, you never know until you get on set. Yeah. But right before in rehearsals, they did, they, they did work together. They did survival training work together. And, um, you know, there was a sense of, of bonding between them that developed just learning these things together. Natural, real bonding. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Right. Um, were there were there other things that you did to to foster a relationship between them early on, a real relationship? Well, I know it's um, been noted that Tom brought Tom and I guess through Miranda, through her mother, brought over a um, Mary greeting practice or a little a small ritual that could be performed uh, before scenes and um, when they met at, and throughout the filming process, which was to have this close contact by putting your putting foreheads together. And that um, I think maybe at first Ben found it strange or, you know, he wasn't sure what, because he didn't have the backstory for that, you know, until it was, it was able to be given. But, but I think it started to really work for them. And um, I think this, and, and they practiced it. And, and it, you know, that was not something that the crew saw too often. That was something that they had worked into some of their rehearsals. And, um, and I think another, um, another wonderful moment came when the skills um, trainer, Nicole, had talked about that they would have a lot of ways of communicating, you know, that if they're trying to be undetected, they wouldn't yell for each other in the woods. You know, they wouldn't just be hollering at each other and, you know, using loud voice, but they would have uh, ways. And I, I think they liked cultivating that. So there were challenges in this role. There were things to grow into. There were things to accrue. And I think both of them liked that. That um, there was sort of a growth curve in the in the actual embody, you know, walking in the in the shoes of these characters involved learning. And it gets back to that willingness piece again and again. I mean, they had to be sort of down for that. Mike Lee has a little bit of a different method when it comes to finding his actors. The legendary director of such classics as Naked, Topsy Turvy, and Happy Go Lucky negates modern methods like video interviews, instead opting for one-on-one improvisations with those going out for the part. Later, these improvisations will become the basis for building scenes throughout the production, and as a result, they are stacked one upon the other to build a narrative. I was fortunate enough to sit down with Lee at TIFF this year for an interview titled Mike Lee on how to become your actor's dream director. Here's an excerpt.
So how do you identify these actors like when you're in the casting process? How do you know that someone is going to have this ability to like build a life on set like that? Well, uh, there are two kinds of actors, intelligent actors and stupid actors. <laughs> and there are plenty of thick actors around in the world, and none of them are in my film. Um, so it needs intelligent actors. And also it needs, as I've already said, it needs character actors, people who are... who can and enjoy and get off on and are committed to playing real people out there in the street, not just, let's say, actors who are not motivated by narcissism. Mm -hmm. um, how I find them is that we are blessed with uh, brilliant actors in the UK. Yes, absolutely. And I've got, a, I work with a famous and brilliant casting director, Nina Gold, who's done lots of movies that you've seen, um, who's done all my films since Topsy Turvy 20 years ago. And, you know, is very good at finding, lining people up. Also, you know, I go and see shows, I watch television, I do all those things that you do when you, and I spent six months casting uh, I mean, there's something I want to say about m my casting uh, uh, thing uh, process is is that uh, first of all, anyone that I audition comes and I have a conversation with them with nobody else in the room, and that's important. Nobody. Why is that important? Because it's about me and them finding out how we're going to get on, and gotcha. you know, mm -hmm. and it's nobody else's business. Right. So the kind of acting, the kind of audition experience that many actors are subjected to, where they get in a room full of people who talk about the script, and the, you know, they're hoping to get Nicole Kidman, and they, well, they're trying to raise the money, or they haven't raised the money, and all kinds of other stuff, and they never ask the actor about that, and never talks about anything, or you know, and they may not. Obviously, it's a film they only just might be in. Mm -hmm. I object to that thoroughly. And so it's all about just one-on-one. -on -one. Because when I work with the actors, if they're going to be in it, we're going to start on one-on-one -on -one work right. with nobody else in the room, you know. Um, so that happens first. And I do that for at least 20 minutes, usually half an hour. And then if, it's, if I feel they're worth pursuing, I bring them back for a whole hour, again, just one-on-one. -on -one, and they do a bit of work, which I won't go into, but to do its character work. Mm -hmm. And by those means, I... Um, get the hang of the possibilities. But here's the thing I wanted to say is the thing I object to uh, that's become more and more prevalent is auditions on tape. Somebody said to me yesterday, do, do, do you record these? Said, Absolutely not. You know, it's... It, uh, the whole thing of self-taping and all that stuff mm -hmm. has become uh, the norm and it's abused. Mm -hmm. It's abused. People don't look at it, or they, you know, uh, uh, and it's very difficult. People, actors are asked to act a bit of the actual film, that, uh, you know, the script. They can't do that. I mean, you have to prepare these things. You can't just pull it out of the hat, you know, in a sort of spontaneous way. Um, not without it being uh, containing a, a, a substantial degree of bullshit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I don't do any of that, you know. And uh, you know, it's all about what's in your head, you know. Are you uh, like reading these like reading scenes with them? No, when you're in the no, 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 just no. It's all about getting them to do people they know and mm -hmm. stuff. No, it's about improvising. Hmm. I felt it was possible for, for the writing process to be combined with the rehearsal process, to be combined with the filmmaking process, with all the playmaking process, uh, for actors to be more than just interpreters, but to be 
creative artists in their own right, mm. and all of those things which have informed and been part and parcel of how I've made uh, films and indeed theatre for ever since the mid-1960s. Can you talk a little bit more about maybe your uh, your pre-production process in that sense? Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, uh, I mean the, the, the pure version of what I've been doing, which is to say most of the films of mine that you can see, uh, which is to say most of the contemporary, the contemporary films, uh, have been where we have set out to explore and to discover stuff and bring into existence, mm. to discover what the film is by the process of making it. Mm. So there's never a script in the conventional sense. I don't sit down and write a script and then interpret it in the usual way. I mean, you know, I work individually with the act. I ask actors to take part in the thing and I have to say to them, look, I don't know what it is. And you, you know, I can't tell you what we're doing, going to be doing, but we'll find it. Mm. And conventionally for the contemporary films where we've made up the narrative um, I always say you know uh, you will never know anything about the project except what your character knows right. which makes it possible to explore relationships in a really organic and truthful way and thus you arrive at something like Secrets and Lies or Vera Drake or Naked or whatever um, so th th that, that happens over a long period um, working in some old building somewhere as a sort of base right. uh, until we reach the point when I can decide on the, uh, 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 the structure of the thing mm. in a very pre preliminary skeletal way and that we could get out on location scene by scene, sequence by sequence uh, and build the scenes uh, through rehearsal, mm. through improvisation and stuff, arriving at something very precise which we then shoot. Of course, while all that's going on with the actors, I'm, you know, p production is preparing and um, design is looking for locations and you know uh, a discussion goes on between me and the cinematographer mm -hmm. to dis decide on the style of what how the thing should look and tests are shot and all of those things mm -hmm. but in the end it's all about getting out there and making a film up as you go along mm. in an informed way and with these period films of which Peter Lou, which we're here presumably to talk about uh, is the latest um, we do all of that, except that, you know, if it's a historical subject and everybody knows what it is, uh, then it's a different thing. But we still use the same techniques and the same approaches to building a character and uh, a characterization uh, and bringing it to life and making it happen. Because you can research till the cows come home. You can read everything there is to read until you're blue in the face. But... That doesn't make it happen in front of the camera. Exactly, yeah. You know, something has to happen that's organic right. and real mm -hmm. uh, and three-dimensional in front of the camera to, so that you can create a truth that, uh, you know, we can believe in. So what are the type of questions that you use again and again with your actors when you're asking them to sort of investigate this well, internal the, life? Uh, um, it starts with, irrespective of what whatever kind of, wherever we're going with it, wherever we're going to go, or whether it's a character based on somebody we read about in history books or whether we're making somebody up, um, I always say, look, make a list of real people that you know and talk to me about them. And sometimes, particularly when we're going to make a character up, sometimes that's very extensive. Indeed, I mean, Sally Hawkins, who plays the central character, Poppy in... Uh, happy-go-lucky. She um, is the record holder at 214 people, <laughs> she knew. Uh, <laughs> David Thewlis for Naked, I think, clocked up 98 or something. Huh. Um, 
but of course that's then. I mean, it, it whittles down to you know so a couple, two or three sources, and it just it's just that you know acting. Some actors are just very good at sort of being themselves, mm -hmm. but what I do is not about actors being themselves. It's about playing characters mm. out there in the street. So it's all about you know if you say well if if you don't bother to. Try and think of sources out there. The actor simply falls back on the res either the resource of himself or herself, or some random cliche, uh, sort of half thought about char character of some sort, mm -hmm. or some or their standard kit of certain kinds of characters. Mm -hmm. um, so it gives us just a starting point, w w which is specific, because the actor you're asking. You're actually asking the actor to do what artists do, to draw from an actual source. Mm -hmm. um, but then it's, it's a sophisticated thing. It moves through different processes until it gets to the character. character. And then it's all about putting the actors together and improvising and massive amounts of research and all of that until you arrive at a point where you've really got whole action on the go. And that, that's the raw material, which we then can draw from when we get onto location mm -hmm. and start to build scenes. Meanwhile, Jeremy Saulnier has carved out his own little place in film history. His second feature film, Blue Ruin, was the first of its kind in many ways an artful genre thriller that is a spectacle to behold and shot on a shoestring budget. His next film, Green Room, cemented his place as one of today's most talented thriller auteurs, and it all stems back from blowing shit up as an eight-year-old in his backyard. His most recent film, Hold the Dark, was a drastic jump in scale in every sense of the word. I sat down with him back in the fall for an episode titled Jeremy Saulnier on why being a DP is more fun than being a director. Here's the clip. It seems like practical effects are a big part of your uh, aesthetic, so to speak, yes. which I greatly appreciate. Um, can you speak to maybe like the uh, what what practical effects mean to you versus like the digital realm that we see so often in action movies these days? Yeah, I it's just what sort of lit the fire in me to make movies is it started with making dioramas in my backyard. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I'd set him on fire. <laughs> but I'd take photos of him. Like, I'd do, like, a cobra hiss from G.I. Joe, put it in the dirt, melt it a little bit. And I started doing these sort of these still lifes. Um, hmm. But I'd, I'd recreate things. I was a, fi a fine-scale modeler as a kid. My dad was when he was uh, in his formative years. So I like just realism and recreating things on a smaller scale, and that translated to a, a, a traumatic experience watching Dawn of the Dead and Friday the 13th Part 3 in a basement. My cousins forced me to watch it. I was about eight years old. <laughs> and they would, it was just, just the opening SWAT team scene in Dawn of the Dead, so the head exploding over and over, some good neck bites. <laughs> and I think as a, as a, I was already sort of artsy and craftsy. I like to do shit with my hands mm -hmm. and paint and be an artist. So I just, well, let me just, before I go insane, let me reverse engineer this and see how they did it because it's actually pretty cool. Mm. I liked the, the, there's something about a zombie flick. And I was like, oh, let me, let me investigate this further. Got into Tom Savini through that. Um, and whatever books I could find, you know, uh, heard about Dick Smith's class, but that was expensive and couldn't afford it. But I always sort of pursued that. And I loved, it. so that converted from still lifes and pictures 
of miniatures to my mom was a researcher at a deaf university and she did a lot of archiving on video cassettes. So she brought home this old, or right then, brand new state-of-the-art yeah. VHS camcorder uh, with a separate sort of uh, shoulder-strapped uh, deck that recorded on a tether. Wow. But um, so then I was doing that in my backyard and, and I gravitated towards the practical effects, um, gags and stunts. It's what, you know, it's like young boys playing in their backyard. It's like like tigers. They play fight. They play mm-hmm. kill. Mm-hmm. War. And that's what we did. <laughs> yeah. um, and I met some friends and we all became a film collective. And, and we just, you know, there was actually no choice back then. We did use a video toaster to do some edits. Okay, what's a video toaster? One of the, one of the first sort of uh, edit systems. Okay. Uh, they had out there mm. for the for like the s- semi-professional market, <laughs> you know, video wipes and transitions. Yeah, and stuff. yeah, yeah. Two VHS players. Cool. But um, we you know we had to do that practically. Anything we would do for school, we'd Macbeth or Beowulf. Instead of doing book reports, we'd just do yeah. video. So we'd get in like Monty Python style wardrobe and mm-hmm. shitty British accents and set each other on fire and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> did you actually set each other on fire? Oh did, yeah! Wow. Car hits. We did everything. I mean, back back then it was a different different era. You could you could walk around a neighborhood with a toy gun and people would know it's just some shitheads with a toy gun. Yeah. Um, but you know, there was blood in the gutters and people would stop by. They they, they weren't saying, "Are you okay?" They'd say, "What are you boys doing?" You know. Um, and we making a movie, uh, you know, down by the train tracks doing bullshit. So it was really fun, kind of a free-for-all, like, you know, late 80s, mostly early to mid-90s. Um, unfortunately, pre-Columbine, mm-hmm. you know, it, just, it was just this nice little time where uh, that kind of shit didn't happen. So you could run around and do crazy shit in the streets and have fun and blow each other up, mm-hmm. and there was not some sort of, you know, no dread associated with it. Right. Just good times, yeah. exploding heads and <laughs> all that stuff. Um, is there any sort of equivalent that maybe like kids today could go out and do? I mean, like the democratization of film is like a real thing with all these new cameras that are coming out. Um, yeah. uh, making a film collective seems like it was such a formative part of your... Yeah, do it young, meaning this is when we could... Now, video was still a novelty when we were doing this, meaning the teachers would sign off like... Oh, these kids are gonna go make a video. Like I had a a, a, a paper due on this sort of the Falkland Island War, mm-hmm. so I just made a video, and did a war movie. <laughs> you know, got all my friends together, got a bunch of fireworks. Um, so it's hard to, like the advice I have, like my story, it's hard to to suggest to people. Like, right. Go get a bunch of fireworks when you're eight <laughs> or twelve, and go blow, blow your up. friends yeah. up. And uh, but. But definitely, but but get your get your hands dirty. Go out and have fun. And um, you know, people by the time listening to actual podcasts, I don't know, they're probably in high school or. Um, but that's when we made most of our films. It's high school, and we had a collective, and we did it, and we didn't have assigned roles. We didn't know who the director was or who the DP. We, we just kind of revolve. If your turn to get eaten by a zombie, you're <laughs> in front of the camera, then you come back behind the camera so that your friend can get eaten by the zombie. Whatever it was, um, we just had fun, and we. You know, yeah. Again, like credit or, um, or or assigning roles just wasn't. We were just a, a sort of organism that yeah. functioned as one. And uh, yeah, I mean, with the access now I'm jealous of. Meaning, even for Blue Ruin, that's what triggered that movie. Is I was waiting for affordable cameras to come out that actually looked like movies. Mm-hmm. And for Murder Party, my first film, 
wasn't quite that. We shot standard definition video. I mm-hmm. didn't know how to light. Mm-hmm. I knew how to tell a story with the camera, but mm. I felt the cinematography, which I did myself, was so subpar. But that's why it was a horror comedy, gonzo, Halloween fright fest. Yeah. It was like, cause let's laugh at ourselves and have others laugh at us too and not try and put, when we first make a movie, we just don't have the skills yet or the resources, so let's just get goofy yeah. and, and embrace what you have around you. That's, that's the certainly lesson you can learn from my movies is Murder Party is my high school friends in a warehouse because <laughs> we can get that done. Mm-hmm. Although the lesson I learned was not just to listen to everyone saying, oh, if you want to do a cheap movie, do people talking in a room because that for me was aggravating because mm-hmm. you have one sort of bit of continuity and you're just, you're getting eight people in a room and they're just talking and doing two, two takes each, but it's still 16 takes of the same scene. You burn mm-hmm. people out. And I wanted nothing more to be more just to be visually sort of driven and go out on the open road. So blue ruin was like actually a response to murder. I'm not going to lock myself in a fucking room. Like everyone tells you to, mm-hmm. I'm going to go get a camera and totally unlock that room hmm. and go shoot what I learned on the corporate video circuit, like little slider on a tripod, five pound Canon camera, you know, mm-hmm. just do this um, and execute a movie that, that, that instead of was what you're supposed to do for a low budget operation was what I didn't see happening, which was a artful genre flick mm-hmm. um, told in a, in a sort of very visual quiet way that has was troubling uh, deep enough to sort of, to hit the art house audience, but satisfying enough on a genre level to actually sell the damn thing. Mm-hmm. Very practically built from the ground up with resources that, from the picture cars to locations to actors, you know, just whatever I had with me. Um, and I did exactly what no one else was doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, it, now it's a lot easier. People do it. And uh, I'm excited to have been like, you know, that's the one thing I did before people, uh, before others. It was like I had yeah. a little space where I did I did Blue Ruin because <laughs> I didn't see those films on the festival circuit I, at the time. I I mean I hadn't seen one. Like I, I was just saying in the intro to this podcast, like I really hadn't uh, seen anything like it at the time, and I was so blown away by like the yeah like the expansiveness of the story that you were able to tell from out of nowhere. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I guess I just got the wrap-up symbol, uh, symbol sign. Um, so I'm just going to ask one last question, which is uh, something that I asked all of our guests, which is if you had any golden nugget of advice for prospective filmmakers. You've given a lot, us a lot of good advice already, but um, what would your top number one piece of advice be? Oh man, that's a tough one. I think I, you know, and I. I'll segue back to Hold the Dark because that's kind of yeah, yes. the, the the most latest movie. You know, one day I'll probably write a book. Ooh, because a lot a lot of the things as you enter the film industry, you have to disclose less because mm-hmm. there's other people involved and other companies and and no, I'm not talking shit about Netflix. They are the best partners ever and supportive. It's more about just like the secret histories of movies and how things get made. Um, there, it's sensitive. Not when I did Murder Party or Blue Ruin because I owned it. I funded it. It was my friends and myself. We were fucking up, and we'll share all of our fuck-ups with mm-hmm. everybody. Um, those are easier to talk about. But for, for Hold the Dark, it was like, you know, I think I learned primarily that the 
imposter syndrome, which plagues so many filmmakers. Like one day you'll be found out that you're not who people say you are. Right. You're not a master of genre. You're just a jerkamo. <laughs> um, and and they're gonna take it take it away from you. You're not gonna direct again. You know, it's just it's just t- this terror. Mm. Um, at a certain point, it, you know, right night right now, I, you have to admit, like, okay, no, I'm a filmmaker, because if you if you go into it, now you should always be kind. You should always be pragmatic, and have solutions that you work out with your collaborators. But you should not be embarrassed to be a filmmaker. You should you should ask for what the narrative demands, and that's what I've been learning the last two movies is. You know, I was I felt guilty because we built a whole concert venue for Green Room. Yeah. I felt I was like, oh, so like we're gonna build it like just because I I want the door here and the hallway here, mm. and then it ended up like the whole the whole architecture of the film it all boiled down to like if it wasn't what was in my head when I wrote the script, it was a redesign of the whole movie. Yeah. So just no, we're gonna spend a shit ton of money and do it. Hold the dark was just, um, you know, I had so many new resources. It was still the same problems as far as like. We were making a $25 million movie for under $15 million. Um, punching above our weight class and doing all that. But um, I came out of it, uh, and I think this might be just more symptomatic of me and my own reservations, but to be grateful, man. It's like I was coming off this run and, and just never had time to blink between making Blue Ruin and and into hold the dark because I, I just couldn't stop. I, between movies, it takes so long to get off the ground, and you're working for free for over a year, and it's like it, it feels fancy outside, but inside it's it's desperate. Huh. But hold the dark, I was like, okay, here I am. I'm doing war scenes and shootouts and intimate dialogue exchanges with you know, Jeffrey Wright and Riley Keough and James Batchdale, Alexander Skarsgård, Julian Black Antelope, like these amazing sort of cast members. And I made myself be grateful. I, I, I said, well, you know, we were on some location scout. There was some miscommunication. We couldn't even shoot here because the logistics can't get the gear up to the snowy path. And it was like, why are we even here? Mm. But instead of bitching, which I, you know, would have done normally, I just, I did, I fell back into the snow, made a snow angel, and looked up and was like, man, I, this is, this is a, Truly a privilege, and I'm really, really thankful. And then, uh, then I got back to work and started bitching again. But I did take that time, so it's important to do that. Yeah. But I, but nuggets is just don't stop. You know, mm. I, stay close to the industry and peripheral career tracks. Like I was a camera person, but I never, I never left. I never, I never quit you film. <laughs> um, so when I came back and did Blue Ruin, and it was with the producers who did films that funded other directors that I shot for. It was all full circle. You keep, just keep in play and, um, and don't get, you know, if you get ambitious and you blow money on a movie, it does not do well or your experiment fails. Um, just, you know, keep working and regroup. And then it, for me, it was six years between movies. And then all of a sudden I broke through and now I'm a filmmaker, but, um, you know, find your own path, listen to me and everyone else that, that, that offers advice, but then filter that and, uh, Ignore what you have to. Yeah, do what works for you. <laughs> yeah. Yorgos Lanthimos is maybe the highest profile guest we've ever had on the show. 
and I was more than a little nervous at the idea of interviewing him. The Greek auteur has a bit of an unsurprising reputation for being enigmatic in conversation, but ours turned out to be a pretty straightforward and candid discussion on how he got his start in the business and what it means to be a surrealist filmmaker. So, without further ado, here is Yorgos Lanthimos on how to shoot surrealist film. What I'd like to f- ask you first is, um, you know, I just watched Dogtooth again um, earlier this week, and we'll get to the, of course, we'll get to the favorite. But um, how how are how did you just like come right out of the gate making these kind of taboo <laughs> films? Like what? Like how are you able to do that as a young filmmaker um, to just challenge challenge the audience immediately um, as soon as you got to the scene? Well, I guess, you know, one of the things where w- was, you know, what attracted me, you know, personally as a as a person, what, you know, what kind of uh, films or literature or music I liked um, that obviously had a, an impact on me. Uh, another thing I think is that I, I, I basically started by working in commercials a lot. Uh, so my first job and where I learned all the technical aspect of of filmmaking is making for for many years commercials, um, and because in Greece you know it it wasn't and it still is isn't very difficult to make feature films because there's no you know there's no real tradition or industry that supports it. Um, it was kind of unthinkable to that you'll make a career as a as a filmmaker of feature film. So I started by, my, by making hundreds of commercials, and when I you know reached the realization that I can you know despite that there's no support or infrastructure that I can just you know make a film with my friends uh, and uh, you know use the resources from. Uh, commercials, production companies, and the money that we were making from commercials. I think it was just doing something that was exactly the opposite of what we we're making while making commercials. So break <laughs> break every rule, like anything, everything needs to be definitely not polished, no makeup, no hair, no lights, uh, rough, uh, not necessarily narrative. It doesn't have to make sense. Uh, just you know, do everything against what we were making for years. Mm-hmm. So I think that was that's how I made my first film, Kineta, uh, which very few people have seen actually. Um, uh, and then I, I don't know. It just I continued from there on uh, making things that I, you know, that felt the the things that I wanted to make. I never felt that I had to succeed in. You know, as a as a filmmaker, because it wasn't really an option for me back then. Uh, it was just making films with my friends, so we were you know free to make them any way we wanted. Mm. Were you ever uh, putting any of your own voice into the commercial stuff that you would do? Like, was there any way for you to sneak in like some sort of the Yorgos we'd see later on down the road, or was that something that you really just like refined after making your first movie? Uh, I mean, I guess it was very limited, you know, but but still, even, you know, because it's uh, it's a craft of some kind, you know, you the choices you make and, you know, visually or aesthetically or uh, <clears throat> I think I used to have, a, you know, an identity as a commercials director as well. It wasn't similar to my identity necessarily as a filmmaker, but obviously, you know, if you have some strong 
ideas and vision about things, I think it kind of goes for anything that you do. Mm. So in a very different way, I think I did have an identity while making commercials. For uh, the the toolkit that you were sort of creating for yourself um, through, I guess, the commercials at first, but then like through the movies, uh, what are your biggest tools in creating sort of these surreal worlds? What are the what are, what are the most useful tools for a filmmaker to create like sort of a surreal atmosphere? I don't. I think you know, in there's something in every part of the process. There's uh, you know, from the, the the inception of the idea, the initial idea is really important. How you materialize that into a screenplay, um, and then how you visualize that through you know filmmaking and performance with the actors and atmosphere, and then editing and sound and music. You know, every everything. E- everything. I guess it's not a very <laughs> maybe it's not a very useful answer, <laughs> but. Uh, I guess every part of the process is very, very important. Um, is there a process that you find yourself sort of leaning towards uh, more than uh, any other? Like, is is there one part that really interests you or excites you still um, to this day through, with um, each film? Well, again, um, there's no there's no one part of the process, but there's moments in each part of the process that you know are what feeds you in order to be able to continue. I think, you know, when you're when you're thinking of something and you kind of get the idea and you get excited that this is something that can be really good, when you, you know, re- you reach a draft of a screenplay that you start feeling confident that you're very near into starting pre-production, mm-hmm. that's very exciting. Pre-production pretty s- sucks because yeah. pretty much because, <laughs> you know, there's so many... You know, difficulties and practicalities that you need to solve. Uh, but but again, I think you do find, you know, the moments where, you know, you come up with ideas with your collaborators or you're rehearsing with the actors and it's fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm. then filming is extremely stressful because, you know, it all it, it is always about budget and time and how you're going to manage to get the things you want to get and it's going to be like that forever and you can't return to it and it's going to stay in history as you recorded it right. at this moment right. and the the pressure is immense so it's 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 quite stressful but you know you do find yourself you know smiling and laughing sometimes with what you're seeing in front of you and what you know these adults are creating yeah. um um and then again, you know, the editing I find quite a boring process. It's very long and boring. But again, you know, when you see something that didn't work and then all of a sudden by fiddling with it, it works. Yeah. Again, you know, there's an excitement. Uh, you you find you find again your your excitement. Um, I, I saw your film at uh, the New York Film Festival um, a month about a month ago, and you told the audience in the Q and A after that there's these title cards. Um, that weren't initially in the plan for the movie, but that's something that you found in the edit, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess I felt that um, the film was, had a, the rhythm of the film was quite fast and things were moving really fast, yeah. which was a good thing. But at the same time, you know, I, th- I felt that in, I needed to, uh, to have some pauses in a way that weren't long and be able to, um, uh, get people through a certain period to the next chapter. Mm-hmm. So I, I found, you know, that the titles were, the cars were a, a, an efficient way of doing w- that without having to spend a lot of time or, 
coming up with different scenes or so um, it was a matter of more punctuation mm. for me but also you know a, a humorous aspect of it like yeah. using a line from the film uh, making it into a chapter I guess it's quite a literary uh, device uh, in some ways what would you say to I guess critics in particular who are like this is your most quote-unquote palpable uh, film to date Uh, well, it might be. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I hope it is because it's more expensive than the other yeah. ones. <laughs> um, but but again, I mean, I never, I, I really never think that way when I'm, you know, choosing what I'm about to make. It's just things that interest me, things that challenge me, feeling that I'm doing something slightly different, uh, feeling that I'm becoming better at certain things. Um, so, and again, you know, I remind you, I... I read this 2009, so I, we started developing developing it back then, so it could have been right. the next film I made right after Dogtooth. Yeah. So that would be a left turn. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it doesn't really, it didn't really matter the fact that I made other films. I mean, I think I make the films when they're ready to be made mm. and when I'm, I feel the time is right or the script is right or you manage to put it together because of financing or because of casting. I mean, this another reason this took a, a, another year or so to make is because we, were, we, we sometimes had to wait for the cast because mm. I really felt it was very important to have the right actors for it. And when, you know, it didn't all fall into place as I, I wished it had, we had to push the film and then I ended up making another film before um, hmm. so it's 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 you know many different reasons why you make a film um, when you make it but it's for me it's certainly not uh, a plan on making something which is you know more palatable and right. then something which isn't and then something which is or anything like that Well, then going back to some of the more like, um, I guess taboo sort of imagery or filmmaking that you have done um, I'm like a really big fan of when a director kind of provides us with like the ugly side of things rather than the beautiful. I think it's like a more uh, engaging way to communicate with your audience and it leaves them sort of thinking, uh, you know, more critically or more engaged when they leave. Um, is that something that you like resonate with? Are you sort of fascinated in maybe uh, screwing around with your audience a bit or? Yeah. Well, I guess, I, you know, people do ask me why I'm so pessimistic or my films are so dark. And, <laughs> well, um, um, but I but I, I think, yes, it's be, because of what you're, you know, you're explaining. I, I, I don't think there's any I'm not interested in making a film about things that go right, because what <laughs> what, what is there to say about it? I mean, it's OK, it's fine. It's going right. So why should I say something about it? Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, all of those things you want, I find myself wanting to expose and wonder about and ask questions about is things that are not right or things that I think we maybe think are right, but I think we should question. Mm. Uh, and um, so I think that's how I'm driven to make the choices that I make. Hmm. Is there anything uh, that you would be like, Too, that you think would be too bold to put on screen, or is there anything you would be afraid to like show to an audience? Um, I don't know. It's. It, I think it all depends uh, in context. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, any image can be too much or too little or whatever. Uh, Have you had any ideas for films where you've been like, oh, okay, wait, no, this is something that I I can't 
uh, actually follow through on. Not because really, because bec- uh, until you actually flesh it out and have a complete thing, yeah. uh, you you probably don't really know. I think anything is worth exploring, mm. and if you feel that it feels right, you know, you go ahead and and do it. Don't try to conform with anything don't try and fit in any box just you know do what you feel is right for you just um don't try and imitate anything don't try and succeed uh because i i i think only if you if you are genuine and you do you know what what is true to you and what you're interested in that's how it can only go well and that's how only you'll be content and maybe you'll find you know whatever kind of success is important for you finally today i've selected a portion of a conversation with one of the world's greatest living editors joe walker when you take a look at the roster of films he's cut it's clear that i'm not making any sort of exaggeration here hunger sicario shame blade runner 2049 12 years a slave widows arrival all edited by Walker. This is an indispensable conversation for any director who's currently working in post-production and any editor looking to get more gigs. The episode is called Think Slow, Act Fast. Joe Walker on editing for Steve McQueen and Denis Villeneuve. Here's the clip. So for people who may not be able to like afford uh, the chance to screen in front of a wider audience, uh, is there still some value in maybe just like sitting in a room with two or three other people and watching it with them? Or is that is that feeling still there? When I cut a sequence uh, during a shoot, then I will cut something. I'll always ask Mary, my first assistant editor, to come and sit with me and watch it. Mm. And uh, I'm interested in what she's got to say, but I'm actually also, you know, probably, you know, hopefully not to disservice to her thoughts about it. It's just the process of seeing it with somebody else is a different, it's a different thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You can feel chemically, you know, when something is working. Right. I mean, we, you know, I'm celebrating, I mean, I I love cinema and I love the process of going to see a film with a lot of people. I remember, you know, back in the, whenever it was, seeing Total Recall with, you know, a thousand people in Leicester Square and we're all thinking the same thought at precisely the same frame. And I I love that. That's what I'm thirsting for. Yeah. So what kind of notes uh, do you like to receive as an editor? What are like productive notes um, from people who have seen the movie? Um, well, do you mean from directors or from yeah, audience from directors, members? Sorry. Well, I mean, look, when you're working with a director, the best scenario is really when they treat you a bit like an actor, you know, not to spell out the steps, but mm. to kind of give you, throw you a challenge and see how you um, attend to it. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we meant to have mastery of this material. I know what all the takes are. I've seen all the material. And sometimes, you know, a director saying, ah, oh, you know, I wish this wasn't, this is too high you know, blood pressure, the scene, I need this just to be a little calmer, or I need a a gentler version of that line. And then, you know, you set about trying to find it and solve a problem or I need to get into the scene later. I don't like the kind of feeling that every scene is starting with somebody coming through a door, what can we do? And it's, it's, uh, you know, the smallest microcosmic part of editing is the cut, and where you cut from one shot to another. But really, what's happening 
um, or what I'm trying to do is think, you know, like, act, you know, think slow, act fast. So my fingers are busy doing the kind of finding the cut, but actually you're also thinking about how you're structuring a sequence and at large how you're trying to pace a whole film. Right. So it's kind of really nice to have that engaged and for it to be handed, you know, to give you ownership of that, mm. you know. So then how do you maybe like avoid a change in one sequence affecting the entire structure of the film? Because that's such a, a hard balance, I feel like, to maintain in the editing room. Um, are there any tricks that you've picked up throughout your career that have been like red flags um, when you're making a cut that you think, okay, well now this has really affected the entire like tone of the film in a negative way? It's interesting, isn't it? Because you have to kind of um, be prepared to have a heart of stone and really drop maybe even the best sequence right. in a film to make it work. I mean, on, you know, I'll give you an ex a solid example. Yeah. On Sicario, we had the opening scene originally, as sh written and shot, was a phenomenal scene with Benicio del Toro torturing somebody to death <laughs> and then giving him, um, you know, bringing him back from death by, you know, giving him resuscitation, resuscitation only to start interrogating him again. It's like such a brilliant yeah. scene. And it was a heartache, but it was like the biggest effect of dropping it was that it empowered Emily's character. I always thought that, you know, one of the great secrets of the success of Sicario was that you had this viewpoint, an outsider's viewpoint, of somebody moral looking at an immoral world and discovering it piece by piece. So it's very important for me that she encountered Benicio, we encountered Benicio through her, rather than the filmmakers, you know, the hand of God showing you Benicio del Toro and saying, okay, he'll be back. Yeah, right. It's that changes the tone of the film to start with her in the back of a van about to bash into a house. Oh, yeah. And it's, I, I mean, that opening sequence is incredible, like to watch and just, you know, th you throw the audience in right away. Um, it's very, you know, it's bit with Roger Deakins and with actors like Benicio, it's a really, it's a tough call to sort of jettison something that's really a great scene. But you have to kind of stand back and just say, look, you know, what's the effect of it going to be? How's it going to empower your central character to remove it? Yeah, I mean, I had a question written down, which was, how do you know what to cut? <laughs> which is such a, you know, broad question. But yeah. um, if you could, if you have an answer to that, what would it be? Well, you know, I suppose, you know, the bottom, <laughs> the, the base level, you cut boring bits out. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's like, you know, it's, it's made easy for me. I've been very blessed because the two main directors that I've worked with recently shoot very economically. Mm. You know, Steve and Denny, you know, it's not sometimes it's three or four takes. It's single camera. So, you know, Roger Deakins shoots single camera on, on uh, you know, there's only a few times on Sicario where there would have been two cameras um, and on Blade Runner 2, only occasionally. The stunt material, of course... Uh, is often covered by like many cameras, but for practical reasons. But, you know, it does enable you to kind of, um, it's already kind of chunked down uh, for you. It's, you know, I've had the opposite extreme. I cut a film for YouTube, you know, Life in a Day, which is four and a half thousand hours of daily. Oh, so, you know, that's kind of a big ratio. But, you know, you're having to find ways of chunking it down. And, and you know, it's it helps that I've only got, an hour and a half's material to look at every day, which means I can look at everything, and I can uh, and I can respond like a first, almost like a first audience member, mm -hmm. 
and follow my hunch as to what they want to see and how to, you know, what order to show it. Are there any mistakes that you see fledgling editors make time and time again that you can warn our <laughs> fledgling editor audience to uh, look out for? I don't know. I think it's the, the temptation. The obvious one is that people overcut and they, um, they're they sort of bashing around between cuts. And you never really... I always like giving people an opportunity to have the feel of pace, but to give people an opportunity to kind of peer into the soul of the main characters, you know, and to, to you know, I'm, I'm kind of always obsessively looking at the eyes and the dance of eyes between actor and a, another actor. So, and I want to kind of give that, get that intensity, and that's kind of a lot of tricks and hard work to make that happen. Um, but sometimes, you know, I had a, there was a really good example was I went to the University of York and I sort of had a little masterclass and I took a sequence from Shame, mm-hmm. second feature film I did with Steve. And Steve gave me two shots of, um, of, uh, of somebody singing, you know, it's like New York, New York, sung as a slow ballad, listened to by Michael Fassbender's character and um, Carey Mulligan singing this amazing song. And But I had two shots and it's four and a half minutes or whatever it is in the middle of a film, danger zone, <laughs> you know. Yeah. There's no plot going yeah. on. There's nothing advancing. And how do you cut these two shots? So I gave them the material and we looked at 20 versions of the thing. And, of course, there about half of them people like were a pool of sweat trying to cut between one, you know, line of the song and a reaction to it. So Michael was, you know, <laughs> overreacting to every other line. And then, I mean, the version I did had one very simple cut to him, and at a very specific point in the in the song where she's saying it's up to you, New York, to New York, and she seems to be looking in his direction. I kind of made it look as though it was a very direct um, approach to him, and his reaction was very surprising. And it tells you an awful lot about their two characters. Um, that that cut, that choice of where to cut. But actually, somebody, you know, really outdid me. There was somebody who did a version where they didn't cut to Michael at all. <laughs> and I was really impressed. I just thought, God, I wish I'd thought of that. Is there any sort of uh, platform that you recommend editors learn on firsthand? Like, did, what do you use? Do you use I Avid? use Avid. I mean, I came up from film, so I did 16mm35. Then I learned Lightworks, which was a brilliant uh, platform. Um, and then moved to Avid mostly because, you know, the majority of of uh, drama jobs are cut on Avid. It's just a standard, gold standard, mm-hmm. and it's very robust, it's particularly if you've got five or six cutting rooms all looking at the same material. Um, and, uh, you know, it's an industry standard. Uh, um, I, I've not worked on the other platforms, and, uh, you know, I haven't had to, but... It you know if it's wet string it doesn't really matter does it if it was shot on wet string I mean if it's a good story yeah um, uh, that it's not really the 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 method it's it's the story for me so in the same vein as the question about you know uh, fledgling editors making a mistake are there a lot of mistakes or, or is there any sort of mistake that you see time and time again with fledgling directors that will end up hurting them in the post production process. It's hard because you've worked with such incredible directors, I I've think. I've been really lucky. Yeah. I don't know. I think, you know, one of the problems, I, I, I'll 
answer that tangentially, which is one of the problems I had with television. I did a lot of television work, yeah, and yeah. then I wanted to move out of it. And one of the big reasons was um, people don't test the films. You know, the, nobody who hasn't sat and watched the dailies or written the script or produced it is looking at your cut. And there's no uh, naive audience, if you like, um, to watch it and for you to measure its success. And I can remember the frustration of that because, you know, sometimes in the process you, you're pushed to speed things along and you're just going, they're not going to get that. They're not going to get that. Arrival, you know, we had um, phenomenal, you know, uh, friends and family screenings from five or six people. And that was really instructive, especially with a film that has a big twist and knowing when did somebody get that. And we wanted it to be, you know, fully got so that you feel something at the end of the film. And without really knowing where you are in that story, that ending isn't as emotional as it should be. So, you know, we learned a lot from hearing people. Um, we just invited to, them to come along and, you know, bring their baseball bats. <laughs> yeah. Tell us what tell us what they thought. Um, I, you know, I, the young directors and um, I just see sort of great work all the time. I, I, I can't see negatives. I just see a lot of kind of new voices and interesting ways of doing things that aren't, you know, uh, that I learn from. It seems that uh, one thing that you did mention earlier in the in this interview was that uh, you respected McQueen's ability to sort of let go of some of the things that he may have shot and uh, almost used the edit as another uh, script writing, like another draft of a script in a way where he like can actually like look at his movie now and yeah. make these decisions. Well, also, you know, he's it's a place where you kind of create new material because, you know, uh, luckily on, on Hunger, we had the advantage that we had six weeks where Michael Fassbender had to lose weight. So we were able to cut the first two thirds of the film. Yeah. And it meant that we could drop a few things from the last third of the film that were yet to be shot and also do a few pickups. So it was kind of a very useful thing. I think, you know, there is, you know, directors are often feel ashamed or, you know, bashful about the fact that reshoots happen but I really celebrate them as a possibility sometimes to set something up yeah. earlier in the story that pays off later or little um, story beats that might just you know you're just going did you actually get the scene let's what what if it was something else let's try uh, think outside the box so my last question for you is uh, if you had any advice to aspiring editors what would it be watch lots of movies. I mean, there's nothing more instructive than... Even bad ones are very, very useful. I mean, I, you know, I'm always asking my assistant when they don't like a film. I said, look, you know, if you didn't have any choice on casting or, you know, uh, choice of music or something, what would you do with this film? How would you change... How would you have made it better? So even a bad one, you can come out and say, well, you know, actually, uh, it would have been really helpful to have started this story you know, later, right. or, you know, um, or got sort of cut down on this character rather than that, or, you know, got more of a sense of pace. I think it's kind of an intellectual exercise. Mm. What would I do if I was editing this movie? Absolutely. Watching it with a critical eye from an editor's standpoint while you're actually in the theater. You know, really good film, actually. I don't think about the editing, mm. in truth. It's like probably only the ones that are a bit creaky in some other way that I'm starting to wear of all the plumbing, be mm. aware of all the plumbing. And that's maybe how you know it's a good film, is <laughs> because you're not yeah. thinking about it. So. Yeah, you're just compelled. Yeah. That's the idea. 
That's all for this week. Stay tuned next Monday as we continue to count down our best moments from 2018. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and rate us on whatever podcast platform you choose to use. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim and No Film School at No Film School. We'll see you next week.